one of the most popular posts on my blog has been the one about um, how and why not to stop halfway in recovery. Mm. And it's something that so many people get to um, where they're, they're no longer very severely underweight. They, they feel that, you know, the, the cognitive preoccupations are kind of tolerable, but they know that they're not really there wherever there is. Um, and so they get stuck in that middle ground, which is basically the worst of both worlds. You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Today you're going to hear the conversation that I had with Emily Toshanko, who's based in the UK, um, about mostly about overshoot in eating disorder recovery. So that important um, topic about eating to the extent that the body needs to eat in order to recover fully and a lot of the time that involves eating to a weight that is actually over what the target weight or the pre-eating disorder weight might be and then allowing the body to in its own time when it feels that it can do return back to whatever weight the body stabilizes at. So um, I know that this is a topic that for many of you in recovery is really tricky it's difficult to get your heads around um, and it's one that the eating disorder often uses it uses the insecurities around this to sort of pull you out of um, eating as you know that your body wants you to eat so um, I'm really excited about this one so before we get into it there's just something that I want to say the term overshoot I hate the term overshoot I don't think it should be called overshoot because when we say overshoot it implies going over or going beyond whatever something should be and I think that the weight that a person who has been suffering from a restrictive eating disorder for a long time needs to achieve in order to recover fully shouldn't be called overshoot I think it should be called their um you know, weight restoration weight or recovery weight or something else like that, because I do think that this is something that we need to actually aim to do. Um, and I've written before about aiming to overshoot, but, you know, we should not be calling it overshoot. And I do continue to call it overshoot because that's what people know it to be called. And that's what people search for when they're Google searching this, this thing. And that's what they look to see. But I would like to put it out there that overshoot is not the correct, Correct term for what we're talking about here, which is basically the weight that you need to gain in order to reach that really full recovery mentally and physically. Anyway, enough from me. Here's the podcast. Um, the first thing that I asked Emily, though, was to tell us a little bit about herself. Well, I, I find that a bit difficult in professional terms at the moment. I'm not quite sure where I am. I, for a long time, have been at the University of Oxford, um, originally doing research on literature, gradually getting interested in the kind of cognitive effects of reading fiction, um, and then segueing from that into thinking about cognitive effects specifically in the mental health context. So what effects might have, might, might reading fiction have on for example, people with eating disorders. Um, so I found that those parts of my life have started to, to join up a little bit, which is quite nice. Um, 
but I, I currently don't have a job at Oxford. I'm applying for various research grants and um, also have various freelance writing projects on the go. So everything is slightly in flux, but in quite a fun way. So that's rather interesting about the um, literature and eating disorders. Yeah, there's there's quite a lot of um, of so-called bibliotherapy being practiced um, by clinicians, but there's rather little evidence as to whether it's effective, if so, how. Um, more, there's some evidence with regard to, diff to other mental health conditions, um, but really nothing with disordered eating. So, uh, yeah, I'm quite keen to start to put to the test lots of assumptions that people have about the fact that, you know, proper literature must be good for us. And, um, yeah, the, as I say, there are more assumptions than inquiry into what's actually going on. Uh, so that's, that's something I hope to get money to do. Um, a bit more of yeah, fascinating. What what sort of assumptions might there be? I mean, I know nothing about this this field. So, um, when you say proper literature must be good for us, um, what what would that mean exactly? Well, I think I think that's the sort of um, baseline assumption, if you like, that um, as long as we choose canonical texts that have been kind of validated by, I don't know, society, then um then it, it must do us good in all kinds of ways uh, to engage with them for example there's quite a bit of research on the fact that um reading certain kinds of fiction may make us more empathic um a lot of those studies have have quite severe um methodological problems but but some of them are valid and interesting um but then when it comes to the the clinical realm specifically um for example people uh have kind of declared that um, reading a text in which the protagonist is in a very similar situation to the one the reader finds themselves in um, is likely to generate some kind of insight into into that situation and um, thereby through some mysterious process also generate um, the willingness to do something about that situation and to um, uh, you know, to escape from whatever problematic situation it might be. So uh, that that's just one of the things that I, I would like to investigate, you know, actually, sh should we necessarily assume that um, the greater the proximity between the fictional character and, and the real person, the more helpful that is, or could actually reading about someone who's entirely different from yourself has none of the problems that you do and or, or different problems um, and, and can offer you simply possibilities for thinking beyond your own experience might that be useful in in rather different ways okay. um, yeah i understand that a bit more now i can see how they could both potentially be useful as well yeah 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 that, well that is a that's definitely an interesting topic of study um for someone like yourself as well i imagine yeah it's quite nice to as i say have these these bits of my expertise connect up um i mean I'm probably, there's probably no per perfect person to do this research because it requires all kinds of, uh, of, of different expertise in, in, you know, designing experiments and uh, analysing the literary stuff and um, knowing how to deal with clinical populations and all that kind of thing. But um, I guess I feel, I, I think someone should do it and I, it may as well be me. <laughs> <laughs> um, good luck with that. And I, you know, I'm, 
I know that I know what you mean by the sort of it's nice to have the two worlds come together a little bit more, you know, um, and that that's sort of must feel a bit like it's all fitting together the way it should do. Yeah. So I I wanted to talk to you today about this concept of um, overshoot. I I get a lot of questions on it. I know that you've written um, quite a bit on this, and so I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe we should start with just you um, sort of defining what you think that actually is, this term overshoot that we use? Well, I for me it means not expecting that the body weight at which you end up at the end of the weight restoration phase will be the weight at which you spend the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as I know, there's there's really no systematic research on this, so it's it's quite difficult to generalize with confidence. Um, this is true of so many things in the realm of eating disorder research. Um, but anecdotally, both from my own experience and from the experience of many readers that have been in contact with me or about whose experience I've read on online elsewhere, um, it seems very common that um, that there is that it's necessary to regain more weight than will ultimately um, be necessary for your body. Um, and and there is one study which, the amazing Minnesota Starvation Study, which um, does provide a bit more, um, if you like, substantive uh, empirical grounding for this. Um, the, the participants in that who were all com- chosen to, for the fact that they were robustly healthy young men um, and were subjected to a, um, a very tightly controlled semi-starvation diet. And um, f- that was followed then by a, um, a controlled program of, of refeeding um, and subsequently also by a kind of ad libitum, um, you know, eat as much as you like <laughs> phase of recovery after that. Um, it, it was really remarkable to the researchers how just how much the men ate in that final phase and the fact that many of them regained far more weight than, you know, far beyond the point at which they'd um, entered the study. Uh, but then within, you know, some number of months, basically everyone had had got back to something fairly closely approaching normality in, in both their um their attitudes to food and, and their physical state. Uh, so, so there's that kind of evidence, and then there's a little bit of evidence too regarding the um, the physiological details of uh, of weight restoration. The fact that um, fat and fat-free mass are restored at different rates. Fat goes on faster, as everyone who um, enters recovery is aware. Uh, it goes on faster and that means that there's a lag between the fat restoration and the restoration of everything else and that in turn means that you need to kind of overshoot with the fat to get the other stuff up to 100%. Um, and this is this makes sense from evolutionary perspective that you know the body needs to you know body fat is an, is a is a crucial organ it is doing all kinds of vital things including you know protecting other organs and so that goes first. Um, that comes back first, rather. 
Um, yeah, one of my most visited blogs on my site is the one I wrote about the fat belly during recovery and then the redistribution sort of, for me, it was about a year later. Um, and so I, I know that it's something people are thinking about a lot. I know there's something they're experiencing and not necessarily something that they're told to watch out for or as told is a normal part of recovery and is actually should be seen as a good thing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think there's, I think there's not as much awareness, and um, there's more fear than there should be amongst um, healthcare professionals about this kind of thing. Um, I guess because they, especially those who, who aren't necessarily specifically within the eating disorder realm, they are, they've been long trained as all of us have to to be scared primarily of overweight, and. And so that can lead them uh, to make some quite unhelpful um, uh, interventions in, in this kind of process and not see it as being as crucial as it is. Yeah, I often hear um, stories of people, they said that they, they were, you know, that they put on weight, they're, they're, they're at the weight that they supposedly is their target weight and they their dietitian or whoever they've, been working with has told them to cut back um and probably at a time that maybe you or i would say that's way too soon um mm. for you to start doing anything other than continuing to eat as much as your body needs to eat um but what are your thoughts around those things yeah it really frightens and uh sometimes angers me when i hear stories like that um it, it just uh, looking back at my own experience it seems so blindingly obvious to me that had I started to try and restrict my intake again at 19 or 20 or 21 or 20 wh wherever it had been before I got to the point where the hunger finally stopped it would have just been the most drastically counterproductive thing I could have done I don't know how anyone could be expected to go back to you know deliberately eating less deliberately uh starting to count calories but in a restrictive sense again um after having been through something like this and expect to to ever get out the other side um it seems incredible to me that that's ever advised so one question that i or one thing that seems to come up a lot is people say uh, just this lack of trust that they will actually that the hunger will stop i guess that their desire to eat when they're in that phase will stop and it's i mean it's easy for me to say well i can only tell you about me and it stopped for me and you mm. know i returned to my pre-eating disorder weight and stayed there that's where i stabilized that's where my body wanted to be and i did so without reducing the calories that i was eating um and I know that people, they want to trust me and they want to believe that, but then I know the eating disorder is telling them not to. Um, and so I get a lot of questions around, around that sort of, just that, that trust thing. How do I know that, you know, how do I know that the hunger is going to stop and it's going to slow down when my body's ready? How do I trust that? Yeah, I think one possible response is simply what other option do you have? you know that nothing is going to improve if you carry on the way that you were. Um, there, uh, one of the most popular posts on my blog has been the one about um, how and why not to stop halfway in recovery. Mm -hmm. And it's a point that so many people get to. 
um, where they're they're no longer very severely underweight. They they feel that you know the the cognitive preoccupations are kind of tolerable, but they know that they're not really there wherever there is. Um, and so they get stuck in that middle ground, which is basically the worst of both worlds, even though it can seem like the best of both worlds to begin with. Um, so, so you know, what what are your options? One, to uh, to go back to some kind of um, potentially slightly less severe version of where you were before, or two, to just see the process out to to the conclusion that. I guess you just have to trust will be there, and and yes, I understand that um, that trusting your body after all that you've put it through, or maybe perhaps all that you feel it's put you through, um, is difficult. But I think for me, I just uh, all the other options were just too awful, and so it seemed worth just putting a kind of blind faith in the fact that this option might not be as dreadful as it seemed at the moment. And I know what you mean by the, it's actually the worst of both worlds. I mean, in some respects, it's easier just to be completely sick and very unwell and just have, be completely controlled by the eating disorder or best option to be completely well and, and actually not have the eating disorder anymore. But that halfway place of sort of wanting to be well and knowing that you could be well, almost having a taste of that, but then still having a lot of trouble with the eating disorder. I, it's just a horrible place to be in. And I do think that so many people get stuck there and they actually spend their lives there. They live there um, rather than ever getting quite to the other side. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the problems there is that that people don't aim high enough. They see They see the society around them. They see the many women who are on you know a series of ineffectual diets and feel vaguely bad when they come off them and and then try another one and feel and make constant comments in a self-deprecating way about their body and they, and they think that that normality is the best that they can aim for and also they think that they um they kind of discount the fact that their history means that they can never even be as happy as those other women if they if they do this kind of thing that that they're that their history means that those things are going to um, have a more profound impact on them than they would on someone without such a history. So, so you know, you, you see that kind of normality and you think, well, everyone's like that, so that's, that's how I'm going to be. Um, but, you know, you have to, I suppose you have to create a, um, a more idealised version of normality or health or whatever it might be to aspire to and and not stop until you get there and then perhaps in the end actually be a little bit of an inspiration to to those other people who have never had to fight through the the bullshit to quite the same extent yes um so another question that i get um and this one actually somebody wrote specifically when they knew that i was talking to you um how much do you think actually having a target weight set a set possibly by another therapist or a dietitian helps? Um, I think she's asking because possibly she's got to that target weight and still feel that she wants to eat more. Um, and she, you know, her body wants to eat more. 
but she, you know, her brain is saying, I'm at the target weight. I, I can't go over the target weight. Um, so that's, that's a sort of a strange question, but um, one that has been asked. Mm. Well, it, it reminds me of um, a question that came up at a talk that I gave in an eating disorder unit quite recently. Um, someone asked, so, someone said uh, that her therapist had um, had a plan for her that um, when she reached her target weight, she, her calorie intake would be reduced by some amount. Um, and she was interested in, given what I just said about, you know, don't restrict, don't stop the, the process at some arbitrary point. Um, she said, did I think that that was the wrong advice? And I found myself saying, yes, I absolutely think that's the wrong advice. And then I felt dreadful because I'd, um, you know, I was in a hospital setting and I just basically said that her clinician um, had told her the wrong thing. <laughs> Um, so I felt pretty awkward about it. I wrote a blog post about it in the end as well. Um, and it's difficult. Um, I think, I think targets are, I found having a target in the beginning very helpful because it made the whole process not seem so completely vastly unknowable. Um, and I was extremely skeptical, but also in the end, um, rather amazed at the fact that what my therapist said would happen at different BMI levels did really happen and you know at, at a certain point the OCD stuff got better and another point um, you know flexibility about other aspects of uh, of my eating improved and um, you know that graph was it was something to cling to um, and it's easy I think for for people with anorexia to overestimate the significance of individual difference, individual specialness, you know, in a way it, it's just a very um, mundane physiological process that ha has to happen. And the more there, there is a danger in, um, in trying to constantly make oneself an exception to those, those very simple principles. On the other hand, different bodies clearly do respond differently to stuff and I think the ideally what you would do would be to to create a target and to make it absolutely clear that this was a minimum target and that probably you'll have to go way beyond this but we don't know how far sorry um but that I guess for all kinds of you know pragmatic often financial reasons um that's not how it's done um so, I, yeah, it's it's difficult. I think it, it sounds like the person who has asked the question probably has got to the point where she understands that the process is not complete. Mm, and I know she does. Mm -hmm. So at that point you have the choice, you know, you can you can do what your doctor said and decide that this is the end and stay as you are now and you can also decide to go further and to see what happens and to explore the unknown territory that, that lies beyond that you and i have to be brave to do that but <laughs> <laughs> you do yeah yeah brave or just you know bloody sick of the whole thing sick of li li living in that 
um, that in-between territory that we talked about. Yeah. Um, so another question somebody asked, um, did you have any particular foods that helped you in recovery? Particular foods? Um, I'd never been a particularly uh, cutting out specific food groups type of person. Although I had been a vegetarian for, for many, many years, also preceding my illness, and um, I suppose, yeah, I suppose actually meat was probably the most important thing. I found beyond a certain point fairly early on in, in recovery that I was, um, I craved meat beyond anything. Um, and there was, a, there was a wonderful first restaurant meal with my father where I ordered um, rare ribeye steak and chips and uh, red wine and um, just found it the most amazing experience I, I'd ever had um, and just wanted, particularly wanted the fat on the meat. The meat was quite nice, but it was the sort of crispy fat around the, around the edges that was the really... Um, I have a similar, I have a similar sort of meal that stands out and it was pulled pork, actually, pulled pork sandwich with chips um, um, and just one of those sort of, wow, um, I'm eating this and it's amazing and I'm actually feeling happy and empowered by eating this. Yeah. 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 So I was, um, I was fairly carnivorous for quite a while after that and, and only actually in the last year or so I've started just feeling like I need less meat. Um, but beyond that, I suppose just um, learning how to be a bit playful with food was really important for me as well. Um, I mean, partly that arose out of the kind of penny pinching and um, anathema to waste that, that go along with anorexia. But um, I had, you know, a million ancient things in, in the cupboards on the boat where I lived. And part of starting recovery was was you know, opening all the tins and, and starting to eat the things that were inside, um, some of which were a bit past it, but uh, making odd combinations of things like, you know, porridge with sardines or something. And mm-hmm. um, and also together with a friend of mine, um, you know, playing around with slightly more sensible combinations of things, but also, you know, silly coloured cocktails and just um, making, making the deathly seriousness of it all slightly less... Um, less suffocating yes and also i think we all uh, something i've noticed another trend among a lot of us is is just that sort of seriousness around food and everything has to be eaten for a reason because we now know sometimes i think we have too much scientific information about food and it actually for or for someone like me i know it, it really didn't help sort of knowing exactly what's in everything and exactly what should be eaten with what and just actually being able to you know what if i just want to eat you know like peanut butter with chips that's okay, and I'll just try that and see what it tastes like. Um, yeah. And having fun with that, and not caring about oh, how much protein has this got in it, and how then how much carbs has that got in it, and just not caring about any of those things. Mm. Yeah, and also remembering that um, that it's a great privilege to be able to do this, and just to have you know within arm's reach a handful of supermarkets where you can essentially buy anything you could possibly want to eat, and um, and you know taking that uh, that privilege and working with it and and just trying to enjoy it again. Yeah. <laughs> enjoy food, who would have thought? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, 
Emily, it's it's been great to talk to you. I, if if you just would have one one message, one thing you you could say about the whole sort of um, recovery process and getting you know that overshoot process, um, you know, if you have any final thoughts on that, I'd love to hear them. I. I wish I'd done it sooner. I also think probably I couldn't have done it sooner. And I'm just deeply, deeply grateful to whatever it was in me or my surroundings or the people who helped me that I managed to to get through it and really come out on the other side. I, 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 it, it, I find it hard now to to quite comprehend that that was me and that life could be so very different now. So I guess for those listeners who are still trapped in not being able to believe in the possibility of something different, just remember that that is in itself a symptom of the illness, the inability to imagine it being different and treat that as evidence that you need to just act regardless and make those possibilities happen. Wow, thank you. That was both beautiful and inspiring, I think. (laughs) Um, Emily, where can people find out more about you? They can go to my website, uh, trashanko.com, or they can um, look for my blog uh, at Psychology Today which is called A Hunger Artist. Um, Hunger Artist, incidentally, is also the name of a short story by Kafka, which uh, is about a a man who fasts to death for other people's entertainment. And it's quite an interesting story, which uh, people might also like to explore. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you. You too. Thank you to Emily Joshanko for coming on the podcast today and speaking with me. I will link to her blog and um, the various other things that we spoke about, blog posts of hers, in the show notes to this episode so that you can get to those straight away. Remember, the you can always ask me to find people to talk to on this podcast about particular topics. The, the topic of Overshoot today was inspired by somebody writing to me and asking questions about it, and so I thought... Let's get somebody that knows a lot about Overshoot, has written about it as well on, and therefore I reached out to Emily. So you can always let me know what what you need to hear, what what questions that you have, and I will go ahead and find somebody to help us answer them. For those of you who are in active recovery from an eating disorder, then remember that I do have a Slack group, which is especially for adults, people over 25, who are actively in recovery from an eating disorder. And we talk about all of these things, and it's a place that you can ask questions about any of these things and find out how other people are managing them. It's a very supportive, active place and thrilling to watch people go on there and and support one another in recovery um i also have a fair forum for parents and partners or caregivers of an adult sufferer of an eating disorder so if you are interested in either of those you can contact me um, via email they're invite only and my email is info at tabithaferrar.com cheers and until next time cheerio